Hey everybody, Billy Holting here. Thanks for tuning in. I'm super excited for this episode of the Jazz Roundtable. Terry Gibbs is a vibist and one of the few cats still alive from the bebop era. He's got some great stories about Bird and Coltrane that are absolutely amazing. Terry also has some great stories that give us a glimpse into the scene back into the day. And at 97, he's still sharp as a tack. I think you'll really dig the conversation. As always, the Jazz Roundtable is recorded in front of a live internet audience. I've edited a bit from the original, but all the good stuff is here from the live show. The shows are free, but if you'd like to leave us a little something in the tip jar, I explain how to do that during the show. But please note that live at zero bpm.com is spelled live A-T-Z-E-R-O-B-P-M.com. We always love it if you subscribe and leave a review as that really helps us spread the word. I'd like to make this show better and you can help. Please feel free to send ideas to podcast at live at zero bpm.com. Thank you and have fun listening. Welcome to the Jazz Roundtable, brought to you by Live at Zero BPM, with your host, Grammy Award-winning percussionist and mallet player, Billy Holting. Tonight's guest, Terry Gibbs. If you care to donate, click on the donate slash tip jar link in the description or on our website at live at zero bpm.com slash tip jar. You can also tip on Venmo at Z-E-R-O-B-P-M. And now, let's get to the music with your host, Billy Halting. Hey, everybody. It's uh, Welcome to another another Tuesday night jazz roundtable. Hey, I'm really psyched about this because the, the our guest tonight, uh, Terry Gibbs, I've been a fan of his uh, for a long time. I've known him for a long time. He's like the greatest cat. He's one of those guys that deserves his own show because he has stories. Now, Terry says he's the oldest living jazz musician from the bebop era. We're going to find out about that. But also, again, we are entirely tip-based, 100% tip-based. So if you care to tip, I'll put the links up in the chat rooms. It also should be in the descriptions, but if it's not, I'll put it in the chat rooms. You can tip on the website, which goes through PayPal, or you can tip straight through at Venmo. So anyway, let's get to Terry. Let's see, what buttons do I press? And there he is, Terry Gibbs, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> How are you, Terry? It's nice to hear applause. <laughs> no, the, the crowd here loves loves the guests. So <laughs> the only one I hear applause every once in a while, my wife. Every four days, will applaud something I do. We'll we'll wait we'll wait to ask why later on. But this, I want to jump right into this. You are ninety seven. I will be ninety seven in October. Wow, we're gonna have to have a... that's that's three years close to a hundred. I know that's crazy. And you lived, I you survived I the did. bebop era. <laughs> well, you know something, Billy? I've never thought of numbers, seriously. You know, you, you know, in our business, let me say one thing. I'm going to change the subject a second. In mm. our business, let me use Be- Benny Goodman, because I worked for Benny Goodman when I was about 25. Mm-hmm. He was 42. After he played the first four or eight bars, we were the same age. That's the one thing about jazz. There's no number put on when you when you hire somebody, they could be twelve years old. You don't hire them unless they can play with you. I have a a, a magazine on my music stand that uh, it was about a picture, and it says the caption is "You're only as good as what's behind you," which <laughs> is great. true, right, Billy? That is definitely true. You, you know, you can't do without the people with you. That's great. So you started out, uh, but playing you started out on drums, right? Or did you yeah, I, I I start out on on xylophones and drums. Oh, you did, and then then I went and studied uh, a timpani and uh, all the percussion instruments, 
In fact, I had a scholarship of the Juilliard as a snare drummer and timpanist. And so you were doing classical stuff on the xylophone? Or yeah, you Doing yeah, all the ragtime yeah. stuff as well, or? No, just just classical music. I wasn't even playing jazz, you know. Just listening to jazz, but playing it. But I, I unfortunately, I got thrown out of school for hitting a teacher. I was just a young kid. <laughs> and she should have fooled, not fooled me, anyhow. Yeah. Anyhow, and I went on a road playing drums with big bands. When and I then, was about 17, 18, something like that. Okay, and then when did you so you, when did you make the switch, or when did you start playing violin? Well, I went in the army, and I was playing drums with a thirty-eight piece orchestra. We were making movie pictures and all, mm-hmm. and uh, it was like we we had barracks right in Dallas, Texas, and we had about twenty violin players. And violin players are another breed of musician. Mm-hmm. They have their own clique. They do this thing. And there were about six of us, seven of us, that used to like to jam. So that's what I had the vibes there. And I would, uh, we had other drummers, so I let them play drums and I would play some vibes. Oh, interesting. And you just picked it up from listening to Cats, Well, right? yeah, I, well, I've always listened, when I was 15 years old, mm-hmm. uh, the name Tiny Khan, that may not be famous to anybody now, but Tiny was a big influence on on Eddie Drummer, Mel Lewis, Jeff mm-hmm. Hamilton, uh, Frank, you can go down a list of people who play with my band, that style of playing. And and Tiny also was probably the most talented arranger who never took a lesson. Yeah. And, if, and if you had these people around like Johnny Mandel and Al Cole and the Manny Album, they would have told you they learned arranging from Tiny. And mm-hmm. Tiny and I grew up together. <laughs> this is I got to tell you because... From six years old till I was 19 years old, went to service. We were together every night. Now, I weighed about, oh, I was about five foot seven and weighed about uh, five foot five, rather, and weighed about uh, 87 pounds. And Tiny was about six foot two and weighed about 300. If you wanted to know what we look like walking down the street, if anybody knows these names, we looked like Sydney Green Street and Peter Laurie walking down the street at fifteen year old kids. <clears throat> That's funny. And so when you after after the war, is that when you started touring with Chubby Jackson? Yeah, that's what I after after the war, that's when I came out well, Tiny hit me to I came home on a furlough. There was a record band, by the mm-hmm. way, where the musicians couldn't record. And, and and not knowing uh, that there was a Charlie Parker or a Dizzy Gillespie or a mm-hmm. Bud Powell or a Max Roach. Well, I never knew these people were around because they were, you couldn't, they couldn't record, but they were playing on 52nd Street mm-hmm. and just tearing up New York City. And I came home on furlough and Tiny told me about a new music called Bebop. Now, Billy, that's like me telling some other musician, you want to hear a new music called Slagga Booga Daga? That's what the name Bebop sounded. That's what the heck is Bebop. Now, I gave up playing vibes because I had all this technique and my idols in jazz were Roy Eldridge and Leslie Young, who played so simple and beautiful. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do with the technique. And when I heard burdened is, I seriously had what you call a little nervous breakdown. Seriously. Wow. I found Shangri-La, something I've been looking for all my life. And I uh, luckily, I I have good ears and good memory. 
and 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 got got onto the bebop language fast, mm-hmm. and got in with that whole crowd of people. Now, were you sitting in with them or just no, playing I, with I, your own I, bands? I had, or? Uh, they, believe it or not, Bird came out and sat in with me one time. Oh wow! And I later on I got to work opposite Bird and Diz at Bird, where I came a, a bit of a band leader. I worked opposite. Then I worked with Believe It or Not. When I was out here uh, living in California and conducting my television show, I had about 10 days off and Dizzy called me. I was at my music store. He said, uh, uh, Jane Doody just had a Bell Palsy show. You want to come play with me, please? I, I was here before he even hung up the phone. Wow. Now, he worked, see, because he worked opposite of me. And Billy, you don't know what somebody can do until you work with them. Mm-hmm. You can hear them play a million times, buy their records, but... Unless you play with them every night and play the same songs and you hear different composing every night, because jazz is in com- instant composing. Right. When I take a song like Stella by Starlight and take those chord changes and every time I play 18 choruses, every chorus is like another song, mm-hmm. then I know what I'm doing. That's cool. So what do you, I imagine when you're playing opposite uh Parker and Diz, you. What were they like? You, did you hang out with them at all, or were you just? Oh yeah, I'll tell you. what, let tell you. My, my, I had two Charlie Parker songs. And it's in my, you know, my book. Let me hang up and get me on Nobody. It. <laughs> it, it's, it's my daughter, and I'll call her back later. She's not watching. Keeps, <laughs> my daughter keeps checking up on me every day to see if I'm still alive. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, <laughs> I, I, the first I, the first time with Charles, I'll take it. I, I don't want to elongate my story, mm-hmm. and and they're kind of they're all in my book, by the way. Oh right. Uh, I you know I have an autobiography out, and 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 and, and these stories. Uh, well, I'll tell you, it's a wild story. Bird. I was just about uh, let me see. This is about nineteen forty seven. Mm-hmm. I was a young kid still learning bebop. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Parker was a big jive. He was, we all knew he was a junkie, but Bird was the greatest musician that ever lived to me. But, but he can con you into things that you wouldn't believe. He used to, when you used to walk out of Birdland, he'd say, hey, let me a, give me a quarter or give me a dollar. And you'd say, I don't have any, but I can't give it. he said, well, where are you working tomorrow night? And he'd say, I'm working all here, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I'll come and stay in with you. So you give him the money. He'd never show up. The place would be packed, but he'd never show up. So I walked, you know, and I'm very vocal. I mean, <laughs> especially those days, I was vocal with, with, with Charlie Parker and Dope. Anyhow, I come out of the club and he asked me for a dollar. And I told him off bad. He said, the greatest musician in the world begging. I said, you're ashamed. Listen to this. I went through a, you won't believe it. It's like a father telling his son I was a kid. And, and so he said, where are you playing tomorrow night? And I would say, at Georgie Old Simpan Alley. Mm-hmm. I said, I'll come sit in with you. I knew he wasn't going to sit in with me, but I gave him a dollar. The next night, we're in places, because people used to hear about birds going to come sit in, or birds going to be here, birds going to be there. And, and so uh, we're starting our first song, which was Out of Nowhere, and the place is packed. It was, you know, they were all small club, but the place was packed. We played 16 bars of the song, and all of a sudden, Bird walks in with alto sax, coming with the second 16 bars of Out of Nowhere, and he started playing. Now, those days, 
guys like Burden did, but I used to play like 30 courses at a time sometimes. They'd have time at nothing to those people. Mm -hmm. uh, they'd stay on stage an hour and a half sometimes. They wouldn't care. And so uh, he kept, and, and when it came to, you know, uh, the Outer Nowhere has 32 bars. Yeah. So on the 30th bar, I bent down to tie my shoe. And I, was make, I wanted to make sure that he was still playing on the next, on the first bar. Then I stood up. On the 30th bar of the next chorus, I bent down and tied my shoe and unloosened something on my vibes. Really, for about, it was about 16 choruses that I was on the floor on the 30th bar of any chorus he played. I was, if you would ask me, would I rather follow Charlie Parker or fight Mike Tyson? I would say, Mike Tyson, one punch, you're out there. <laughs> Standing there, having a heart attack, waiting for Bird to get up because I got to follow him. And about the, about the 17th chorus, my piano player looks at me on the ground. He says, I'm not going to, I know what you're doing. I'm not going to follow him either. We were like scared rabbits. Now my second thing, I tell you. I got to, uh, uh, seven years later, so I got, I got to playing fairly well. I, I got to, let's face it, in seven years, you if you don't learn, you <laughs> give up and become a shoemaker. So anyhow, uh, a new club opened up. Uh, which was close to Berlin, called the Band Box. Billy mm -hmm. Eckstein, who was very hard at the time, he was like the number one singer. The bill was Billy Eckstein, Harry James and his band featuring Buddy Rich and the Cherry Gibbs Quartet mm. uh, for, for a month booking. About after three days, Monty Kay, the man who owned the club, uh, came over to me and said, Hey, Cherry, we're bringing Bird out of the hospital and he wants to play with you. I said, he wants to play with me? How about play with Buddy Rich or Billy X? I know he wants to play with you. Anyhow, Bird played with me for a month. Wow. And he was the most gracious person. Every time I asked him what he wanted to play, he said, anything you play, Jerry, I'll just jump in. Anything you want to play, I'll just jump in. Bird was a very intelligent guy, and unfortunately, he was a bad junkie. Yeah, that's, uh, that is tragic. And, and uh, but who, who and played to me, he was, he was, uh, there are two geniuses to me, and I'll, I'll tell you why I call him. It only, he's the only jazz musician, and I'll tell you, can tell you why if you ask me why, uh, why he is the only genius. And George Gersman is my other genius mm. that I love. Okay, well, why? <laughs> I'll tell you why. Okay. <laughs> now, Dizzy Gillespie, who I probably learned more at the beginning from because as a drummer, Dizzy played very syncopated. If you took the notes away from Dizzy's playing, you'd hear bop, 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 bop. If you put the notes, you know, you'd hear those. Mm -hmm. So as a drummer, I could pick up the syncopation, but it took a while to get the harmony and theory going, right? So Diz was that good. Now, R. Tatum, who in their 30s, was probably the greatest piano player who ever lived. It didn't make any sense how good he was, but he he was so harmonically and mm -hmm. technically so far ahead of everybody that he changed chord changes all over the place. So with Dizzy, you could have said that maybe his maybe his sound wasn't as good as Freddie Hubbard or maybe just maybe. Mm -hmm. And with R. Taylor, you could have said. Maybe because he was technically and harmonically so great, Walnut, that, that 
maybe even a little cold. Maybe because he would kept changing every every two beats, he kept changing the thing, you know. But with Bird, I couldn't find a maybe. Everything he did was perfect. Mm. Even when he recorded Lover Man having a nervous breakdown, that's one of the greatest choruses I ever heard, Lover Man of my life. Wow. That's great. And so now who was in that quartet when you were doing that? I had Terry Powell in that band. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really wasn't one of my better rhythm sections, but I had New York guys, you know, playing with me at the right. time. Uh, those days they would make me band and I put a little band together. Until I got that group with Charlie Paul for about four years, we would travel the, the whole country. We worked 50, 50 some odd weeks a year. Yeah, well, it, I read in the uh, in your bio you had a, a sextet with uh, Louis Belson and Charlie Shavers. Yeah, that we had a sextet. I was with Tommy Dorsey for about 10 minutes. Mm. And I, I joined the band and quit the flew out, went out to, I took a train for five days out to California. I played about. A song or two, and then quit the band because it had. I was learning bebop, and they're playing boogie song of India and all those. Oh, I, so I told my one. Well, if that's the whole story, and again, I'd have to stretch out. You don't want to hear that one. But anyhow, I was seven. But I met Louis Belson, and we became very good friends. And Charlie Shavers, they were on the band, mm-hmm. and when they left the band, I they came to New York. And we met each other in the street, and we started talking. We said, why don't we start a band together? And we started a band, and we hired Oscar Pettervin, probably one of the greatest bass mm-hmm. players that ever played the bass, and Lou Levy on piano, wow. the monster, and, and, uh, and uh, a guy called Jerry w- uh, Hunter, no, Jerry Winters on clarinet, very good clarinet player. And we, we kept the band together about six months. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of us musicians would love to hear what the vibe was really like back in the day, because you guys were playing six, seven nights a week, right? Well, actually, uh, Frank DeVito, uh-huh. the drummer, who was my band for put our itinerary what, for for one year. He put it on Facebook, and we worked 50 weeks out, out of the whole year. We finished in Pittsburgh at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and I, 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 was, the, I was the band leader. I drove the cars. I, I packed up the instruments because we go out for six months at a time. So we were loaded with like right. checking into a, 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 a house for six months. And so we'd go on a road and we'd finish Pittsburgh on Sunday night and uh, and uh, leave about five, six o'clock in the morning and maybe get to Toronto, in t- maybe in time to check in, if not mm-hmm. right to the club. Get up and go to the bedroom because we had uniform. We all right. wore dog suits. We went on stage, always dressed to kill. Yeah, and, and we knew what we were going to do because these people worked with me for four years. You know, so we we knew what we do, but no sleep. We just you know the whole thing was Billy. We we were all in our twenties, and I still feel the same way. But now twenties, all we cared about was playing music. Mm-hmm. We didn't care about sleeping on a floor. Sleeping right. in the car, driving five thousand miles to to get to the job, finish your job, get in the car, run, pack. We just when we got on stage, we were Hercules. Yeah. We, 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 that's where we were happiest. So were you doing one nighters or week? No, no runs? clubs. Two weeks in the club. Oh, okay, well that's, club, that's better one than one night. Well, it was, and it was the greatest because in nightclubs, I liked. I worked very loose. I don't know what I'm going to say. I know we're going to play, 
But I like to have fun. I like the guys to have fun. If they have something silly to say, I'll be the best straight man in the world. But don't fool with the music. And, you know, I work loose and we get on stage and have fun playing music. That was the whole big thing. Everybody's uh, they have fun. You know, I told I, I told you before you know, that I've written about 200 songs, mm-hmm. maybe 300 songs, because I record about 200 and some odd songs in, in about 20, 80 CDs that I've done. Yeah. And, and I wrote all those songs for me to play. I wrote chord changes that I want to play on and melodies that I want to hear. I, I didn't know that later on that 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 Nat King Cole and Cannibal Adley and and uh, Woody Herman and George Sherry and, and Buddy DeFranco would go down the line about 10, 15 people recorded my songs hearing me play the song, you know. I, I never knew that was going to happen, but I wrote those songs for me to play on because, I, like I said, Stella by Stella, that's one of my favorite songs to play on because they're great chord changes mm-hmm. to write a song on, to improvise on, right. you know? We can all play the blues. By the way, if you can't play the blues, you can't play jazz. You're not a good jazz player. Right. But playing Stella by Starline is an art in itself. Yeah, did you have a, do you have a favorite song that you wrote, one that really just stands out to you? No, I, I like the songs that have, have uh, I, I've written some, like, the blues, funk tunes. I got rhythm chord changes, a whole bunch of things. I like the songs where the chord changes got a little more involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing, nothing out. All right. my chord changes, they, the, 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 the chord changes resolved. If it was an F minor 7 to B flat 7, we went into E flat. Right. If it was a D minor 7 to G 7, we went into C. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in fact, I'm going to show you this now because I'm going to bring it up. My son recorded 18 of my songs. Right. Just, just, and the album will be out in August. Now, now you gotta. I I'll read you the personnel. Oh yeah, you can you see the personnel here? You can kind of see it. it's a little. It's a little. I can read it. You know. I'll check, read the personnel. Yeah, do that. Well, first of all, the AC my song. It's called "Songs for My Father." He's got Chick Corea, who recorded his last thing he ever did, f- doing four or five of my song with Ken, Ron Connor and, and Jerry playing drums. Then he got Kennedy Barron and Buster Williams and Jerry playing drums doing five of my songs. Uh-huh. And Patrice Rushing and Larry Golding doing four or five of my songs. And Jeff Keita and Christian McBride doing four or five of my songs. Wow. And it's called and, Songs and, and From My Father. Songs From My Father. Horace Silver wrote Songs From My Father. Mm-hmm. But by the way, Horace Silver has worked to my band. Well, when it's when it's out, we'll we'll send a link uh, out on the in the newsletter, the newsletter we send out once a, once a week. So, uh, but I want to take a minute here. We have a few people in the in the rooms and that want to say hi. You know, uh, Howard had a comment. He said, "I'm looking forward to listening to what Terry Gibbs says. I met him when I was 14 years old at Mel Zelnick's Music Stop." No, Mel- wait, it's Terry. Terry Gibbs at Mel Zelnick. It was my store with Mel Zelnick running it. Ah, okay. <laughs> Mel, we, we were partners. Okay. Uh, but he said... What, what, what's the kid's name? Uh, Howard. Howard Lubin. Howard, remember that. It was my store. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the music stop. I wonder if it's still there. It's, uh, you know, here in the Valley. No, no, we famous. sold it. I, I, I gave it... To, you know what I gave it to Mel for? I only... I only uh, went with it because he, my name to start with. I was too busy to be there because I was conducting a television show, I would go there and hang out. It was a good hangout for me. I'd 
and and you know it was one of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I I gave him the store for a set of vibes that we had in the store. Mm-hmm. A, a deacon, another deacon, set to take home. I had five of them already, but I took another one home and I gave Mill the store. Nice, that's a good. <laughs> so now, when did you move out to L.A.? In 1957. Okay. And who are you, who are you playing with then? Or is that when you started doing the TV? Actually, you know, I came was- out here. You know, I'll I tell you, it's wild. Okay. I came out to California because I, I had that group with Terry Pollock for four years and we were, we were wiped out. We were, it was like, almost like exhausted to have a nervous breakdown. 50 weeks a year, 52 weeks a year, sometimes for four years in a row. Mm-hmm. And so I... I, I figured I'm going to come out to California and do some studio work. Mm-hmm. And the first guy when I got here was Emil Richards who called me and says he came uh, because I told him, because he studied with me mm-hmm. back in about 1950, 1949, 50. He studied with me in New York. And, and so he brought about 10 different parts of music, of different things that he did, Playing a playing a movie picture, playing a jingle, playing you name it, all different kinds of music that I have to read and play mm-hmm. to, to to do these things. And so anyway, I, I the first person I called was a guy called Al Al something who was a contractor at NBC. Mm-hmm. And uh, I called him because uh, I think he once played drums with my father, and I said I wanted to go on staff. You have a part for me? Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, he says, let me give you a call. I'll find out. In the meantime, I heard that if you were on staff, you can't play in jazz clubs. See, the union was very strong. They wanted to spread the work around. And so all the jazz, all the studio guys were the best jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. Guys out here like Bud Shank and, 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 and Connie Gondoli and Pete Gondoli, all the heavyweight uh, players out here on staff, Larry Bunker, and and and, and, and uh, I, you couldn't play in a jazz club. So Al, Al, Al Lappin, Al Lappin called me back. He said, listen, I'm going to put you on staff. So I, I, I had to get out of it. I didn't know what to, to do. So I said, well, Al, I have to have a double check. And he, on the phone, I th- on the phone, I thought he was going to break my ears. He says, <laughs> Well, you little cocker, a double check. Well, I got an 82 piece band on staff, and the only two people getting a double check is Conrad Gazzo, who was the number one trumpet player in California, and Irv Cotton, the drummer who wound up playing with Frank Sinatra all his life. They're the only ones getting a double check, and he hung up on me. So now I wow. felt better. I, 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 he, he, things. So then he, he called me back about a day later. He won't believe it. He says, you little cocker, he says, you know what? I'm going to put you on staff. And, you know, I knew why, but then I had to tell him the truth that Al, I'm, I'm not ready to give up playing jazz. Mm-hmm. And I know the reason why he put Martin book because those days NBC had the Dinah Shore show, the Dean Martin show, all these variety shows, mm-hmm. and they could have put me on as a guest without paying me any money because I was on staff. I was already there. Oh, right, they right, right. put me on... So, you know, so he, 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 was, he was smart, but he, he understood that I wanted to play jazz. And so I never went on staff, or I didn't want to, and I didn't like doing studio work. 
I hated to go to a few. I went to a, to a gate or two, and and yet there was a band leader there, and, and he was having trouble with some kind of. And you know what? If I would have said, "Make that an E flat," that would have solved the whole problem. But they don't want to, they don't want you to do that because they want to spend as much time in the studio going overtime. Oh. Let him try to work it out. He even takes an hour and a half. Wait, like don't say you don't you say E flat. Let him find the E flat. Oh wow! And so it was no fun, Billy. And I, yeah. I get I, it. And I was used to being a band leader anyhow, you know. Well, you moved out here in 57, you said, and then in 59 you started the Dream Band. That was a fluke. I didn't start a band. I, oh. I, I wrote about that in my book, and I'll tell you how it started. I, I, I recorded a big band in New York, which I wasn't happy about. The drummer I had, Jerry Siegel, was my, in my little group. Great little band drummer, but not every little band drummer could play with a big band. And I wanted to use the same people in my little band doing a big band album because it wouldn't have been fair. They're traveling here with me, sleeping on the floor, doing this. And so we recorded the first few tunes, and the drummer, Billy, is the leader of a band. Mm -hmm. Without a drummer, you don't have a band. Benny Goodman had Gene Krupa. Tommy Doyle had Buddy Rich. Artie Shaw had Buddy Rich. Davey Tuffer, Woody Herman Dollar. Every band leader was successful. Their drummer was the best thing happening. Joe Jones with Count Basie. Sonny Payne with Count Basie. The drummer is the leader of the, any band you play because he's always important. And so, uh, uh, what, what, what the hell was I talking about? I'm going into every every direction, but the question you asked, oh yeah, the dream band. Yeah. So anyhow, I, I went down, while I was here, I went down and heard Bill Holman rehearsing a band at the Union. And I heard, and what they used to do, Bill Holman and Ned Flory, they would write arrangements and they wanted to hear it played. So they rehearsed a band at the Union. I went down and heard how great they sounded. And I got the that, that, that feeling of a big band again. And I got an idea. I, you know, you have to have an idea when you, when you do something, some kind of premise. I took, we're gonna take two tunes from each band leader that made, like Tommy Dorsey, uh, uh, Audie Shaw made Stardust, his chorus made Stardust famous. Lionel Hampton had, and the little you can't play Flying Home, his chorus would made it famous. The Tommy Dorsey theme song was famous. Uh, I uh, I took six different band leaders, and took two tunes that they made famous, and hired six arrangers to write each tune. I sort of sketched with them that I what I wanted, because when I was in the army, I used to write arrangements, so I sketched what I wanted with them. They wrote the arrangements. They had full freedom to write what they wanted to. But I actually told them what I'm looking for. When you give me, take Audie Shaw's chorus out of there, put it in out the arrangement you're going to write for me on Stardust, and I'm going to play vibes with the saxophone chorus, the clarinet chorus, rather. With this, I'm going to play with the saxophones. And on the Illinois Jacquette's chorus, I'm going to play with the saxophones, or whatever you write for me to play with, because the vibes, they never had any section to play with. So I patterned the band after Benny Goodman in and out with a lot of wow. ensemble, Billy. Because mm -hmm. I always thought a big band should have a band, not 84 million solos, but a band. Right. And I lucked out by having six of their greatest arrangers. Now I got the arrangements and I was going to rehearse at the Union for the record date. 
Now, the, I heard that Pete Rugolo, a very famous ranger, who wrote for Stan Kenton and, and wrote a lot of movie uh, theme songs, uh, he, he got fined $1,000 for rehearsing for a, a recording. They wanted you to make overtime. The whole thing uh. was making overtime for the musician. So now I had all this music written, and I couldn't, I couldn't have no place for hers. I got all oh, of my big bad thing. And, and anyhow, uh, some movie columnists like what I did, and she put me, had me go to a club that was going to close called The Seville. Mm -hmm. The owner said, I tried country and western, I tried Latin, I tried everything. And, and so she talked to me to hire me to play jazz. So my first group I had there was Stan Levy on drums, Charlie Hayden on bass, uh, uh, Russ Dreamer on, on, on piano, and Connie Cannoli, myself. Wow. We went in for a few weeks, and then I heard from somebody that you could rehearse for a job. Oh. So I said to the owner, I said, and I was an out-of-towner, so I was getting more than scale to I could pay. Because scale was $15 a man those days. Mm -hmm. That was 1959, because with $15 you could buy, you could rent a room for the week, you know. And so I, 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 I went to the owner, I said, how'd you like to have a big band what you're paying me for 15 guys. I don't care because we don't do business. I'm closing anyhow. So I got a chance to rehearse for the job. And and we were going to play that one night. You know, I rehearsed for the job. And and Steve Allen, who was just a friend of mine then, gave me a plug. on the, uh, yeah, He was on NBC. And every, we just sold musicians. We expect about 20, 30, 40. Big bands were not in, by the way, because right. Dave Brubeck was making as much money for a quartet as Cal Basie was for the whole band. Hmm. So big bands were not in. And so we didn't expect any people in. So came into work about, and we recorded all day. Recorded all day, came into work about, uh, we had to start at 10 o'clock. We came into work about nine o'clock to go in the back room and, uh, and only had 12 arrangements to play for three shows and they were four minute arrangements. I said at letter A, Conte, you got 1,000 courses, let it be. Uh, Frank Russellino, you got a, a, a hundred million. You, I was opening everything up to give my chorus. Each song that was normally four minutes would be about eight or nine minutes. Oh, so I have okay. enough songs to play for a set. And we walked out and to the, out of the dressing room to go play. And the place was mobbed, wow. packed with people. I saw a whole bunch of musicians. I didn't believe were there from a town here, and movie people. Wow. If no people know Fred McMurray and, and yeah. June Haver and, and Jerry Lewis and Soupy Sale, the place was packed with all celebrities. <laughs> and so I took the band, it was a joke, I took the band back in a dressing room. I said, gentlemen, we're starting a band tonight. I just said that for laughs. I don't want to start a band. And the first rule is, there's no drinking off the bandstand. You want to drink, you got to drink on stage. You want to have a party. And I said, the second rule is, hurry up and relax. <laughs> so you wouldn't believe how, how funny it was. Uh, there were 300 people packed in the place and we're about ready to play maybe the second or third song. And Ned Flora used to stood up and said, hey, Jerry, I need a beer. So we stopped, I stopped. Hey, waitress, we need a beer. I think all five waitresses on stage Nobody could get a drink in the audience. They're all on stage. We were having so much, but it was packed. So anyhow, 
the, the guy, uh, the club owner, said, let's try it again next week. Once again, we came at about, this time, by this time, Bill Holman gave me a few arrangements and, and, and uh, Ned Floor. These guys were so happy to be playing with a big band because mm-hmm. all of them had big band in series, but no place to play. Wow. No place to play at all. Al Porcino, best lead trumpet player in the world. He can't play no jazz at all, but played lead trumpet. He's a champ. Where is he going to play? Yeah. No band. He was the happiest to be in a band. Mel Lewis, the same thing. Big band, drama, the best. And so uh, we next week we go in at 9, 9.30. We're going to go in the van room. 30 people, we figured. It's a fluke. You know, we, we lucked out. We had fun. We go to the bathroom to talk about what we just got in arrangements. We walked out once again, packed with a line waiting to get in now, Billy. Wow. It didn't make sense. I, it, you know, and we were like the hit of the of the town, and the scale was $15. After I paid the band boy, the, as a band leader, I made $11. Not bad for a band leader. Yeah. And, and uh, you wouldn't believe it, but we had more fun than anybody. This went on for about like four or five weeks, and then the club owner says, "You want to try it five nights a week for a few weeks?" I said, "Yeah," not realizing that when we two weeks from then when we were starting, Count Basie was opening up about four, three, three, four blocks away at the crescendo with his big band. We figured, "Oh mm. hell, this is gonna be the biggest bomb in the world." We went in, there and I swear, Bill, we outdrew Basie. Wow, his whole band was there inter- on their intermissions. Joe Williams, because I knew the band because I was on tour with them. Sonny Payne, Frank Ford, everybody in that band came over to hear our band because they heard about it in New York. It's wild. That's, so that's, that's how the band started. Then we started to play. You know, right. Everybody was having so much fun. It, well, it was fun time. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I've actually played a bunch of those charts. There's a, a big band here at one of the local colleges, and I got to go be you for a night <laughs> and play a well, bunch of these charts. a lot charts. of my arrangements have been sold to a lot of the colleges. Yeah, and, and uh, Day In, Day Out is one that I also play with the Ron Jones yeah, band. But right. the thing that I liked about if you haven't heard the albums and the things, is it isn't Terry Gibbs all the time. It isn't, it's, it's the arrangements are really great because no, it really band. is a band. It's, it's a, a band, band sound. You're right, it is. It was uh, an eight-bar trumpet soul, this and this. It's, it, I patterned it after the Benny Goodman band because, like I said, mm. I had no section to play with. Like, like if you were a trumpet player, you could play with the trumpet section. Right. Or a saxophone player. So I, uh, Benny Goodman played in and out. But mm-hmm. I, and I like band. But every, and one, one of the qualification with the, with the, with the arrangers I hired, well, no matter what they wrote, they, they had to give me two minutes of ensemble on the end. I yeah. wanted every song to be a clothing song. But give us a two be you know two 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 chorus ensemble, mm-hmm. and that's what made it. That's why the band the people loved the band. They they were this they loved that. And this every soloist guys like Connie Cadoli, Frank Rossellino, Richie Kabuka, uh, Carl Fontana, you know Stu Williams, Lou Levy, Joe Maney, Charlie Kennedy. I can go down to band Bill Holman. These were the greatest soloists. Yeah. But the band was the important thing. 
Okay, I learned that from Woody Herman, by the you way. You can really hear that in the arrangement. So I'm going to go back to the web because we have some other people that have comments and, and, and some questions also. But April says that she met Terry at a gig he did at KRML in Carmel, interviewed him on her old show at KAZU in Pacific Grove, spent some time with him again at a party for Jack Sheldon. Each time was a great evening. So <laughs> thanks for writing in April. And then uh, uh, I once played Carmel where, uh, what's the name, uh, Clint Eastwood. Came uh-huh. in to see me with his wife, and he loved loved Nancy. He took his wife home into mission, and came back as a seller himself for the second set, and then we hung out. Because oh, I, I knew Clint; he loves jazz, you know. Except then, he ruined that picture, Bird. Terrible, terrible. Oh. All he talked about was was bird making junk. He never talked about the genius one. Anyhow, good. Well, and then uh, John Mathis says he just bought the book. <laughs> so ah. you got a record, you got a book sale tonight. So that's you know, awesome. You know, it came, Billy, it, I got to tell you some funny story about the book. I wrote the book. It's very anecdotal. I wrote every word in that book. I sat with it when I was asked by the publisher to write. I sat here in my, in my place where I'm sitting now with a jazz historian, Karen Janelle, who written a few books, and he gave me some pointers, but I wrote every story myself. Mm-hmm. Every story. Was that a gong we just got? That's not, not, not on my end. <laughs> well, like somebody, but Major Bo was giving you a gong, you're out. But anyhow, I, I, I'm sitting here, I wrote every word in that book, and then I get called by people, and uh, they say, Mr. Gibbs, I want your book, and I say, I, here's, I, here's a phone number where you can get it, or maybe you can get an Amazon. After about, uh, about a, maybe about a few months, I get a call from this guy. He says, my name is this, and I forget his name. I'm with ASCAP. I'm calling to tell you that your book won the ASCAP Dean Taylor Award, the best wow. book of the year. So Very I said cool. to him, tell your mother I said hello, and I hung up on him. I thought he put me on. I mean, why would my book win? win the, I, I, I got thrown out of school. I couldn't even spell the word cat. Here I go. And, and you know, I wrote any word in that book. It's how I talk to you right now, and right. And, uh, and so I, I I waited about ten minutes after I said that, and I called somebody in New York who was a friend of mine at ASCAP. Who I know. I said, you know, this guy just called me and said my book won the award. So yeah, he called me. He said, no, I, you, you did win. That was Ted <laughs> calling you to tell you about your book. What do you, we want to fly in and present you with that award. Uh, I said, give me his name. I got to call him back and apologize. <laughs> I let get on my hands and knees, but he's in New York. I'm in California. <laughs> I've got long hands and long knees. That's a, and now, you know, when you guys all go out and buy the book out there at Internet Land, you'll, you'll know what happened. And then you'll know well, an you extra know, you story. You know what? The, it's actually the book sold. It's still selling in hardcover, mm, which wow. is wild. But, but you know now what we they've have done? Which I they've raised the price of the book, which is terrible. Yeah. I don't know why. Ah, who knows? Anyhow, that's but, that's the But I have some questions. Taylor, who is a uh, – he's at North Texas State. I guess it's now University of North Texas. He has a couple of questions. He Let me see if I can find those. Uh, well, first he says he thinks you played a concert with the One O'Clock Lab Band yes, there years I ago. Yes, I did. That, that band was good enough to, to take on a road to, right there. In fact, yep. there was, a, there was a, a ballad play called Jay Garrett, who became a very good friend of mine. Mm. Who's not, you know, and, and, and we made a deal. We moved out to California. He would be my band boy, and I would give him lessons. He's now a teacher teaching uh, uh, school somewhere in, in, uh, in, in Tennessee. 
but he, he but he was in North Seas in that band. That's uh, very cool. Okay, but Terry has some questions. One, he wants to know: Do you have a favorite gig or record that you ever played? You know, should I tell you something, Billy? After I record something, mm-hmm. I hate it. I hate it for the first six months. I, I, you know, and the biggest drag is the last 20, 30 albums I produced myself. Mm-hmm. So I had to go in a booth and sit there, and all of them are live. You, you can't edit. They're live or, or, or live in a studio, mm-hmm. but live. Right. No, and because we played, we played for three days with that group, rehearse, play or in a club, or whatever we're doing it, and then record for three days. And so you have to take the best take. And, and, but to listen, after listening to for, for eight hours a day to your uh-huh. own playing, you say, God, give me another, let somebody else play my chorus. And, and you know, but, but, and then six months later, I listen, I say, that, that wasn't too bad. Buddy DeFranco and I will play together for 20 years. We were both the same way. Every time we recorded, Buddy didn't want to hear a playback, and I didn't want to hear a playback. We didn't want to hear it. And we, we didn't like to reckon. And then about, uh, this is, Buddy had been gone a while. I called him one time about six, seven months after we recorded that thing. We're ready to go travel somewhere again all over the world. And I, I hear music in the background. I said, what is that, Buddy? He says, that's the, the song, the, the album we did. I said, you're listening? He goes, yeah, it doesn't sound bad to me now. And we both hated it. He wasn't even <laughs> listening to the playback, and I didn't like it either. It's wild. You know, the whole thing is, when you really start liking what you did when you did it, mm-hmm. and don't think maybe you could have done better, then you're okay, musician. You're not, if you don't think you could have done better, and you could have done better. You know, mm-hmm. I, whenever, I, I don't make up choruses. Like, whatever comes out of my dumb head, Comes to uh-huh. my mallet and goes to, to, to the to the vibe, you know. Uh-huh. Well, you know, let's talk about that because you, you and Buddy played together for 18 years and I actually saw you two play in Kalispell, Montana. <laughs> Where I was on I was doing a gig that night on the same stage right before you guys and uh Yeah, I remember seeing you there. It's a funny story. I'm up there and I'm playing and I hear this voice off to the side of me yelling something and I can't while I'm playing, I'm trying to figure out, I can't understand what he's saying. Were you saying. a new role at the time? Yeah, I was. And I get done and I look over and you're standing there and you're like going, nice choruses. And I'm like, I couldn't hear that word while I was playing. So, and then you guys well, went on after us and it was a fantastic show. You know, you know, I love complimenting people after they do something. I, I, I did one thing, Elliot Lawrence, who was, who was had a jazz band in the old days, mm-hmm. was conducting uh, Broadway shows. And he conducted the Tony Awards one time. And I conducted television. And he did such a great job because I hate when the, the thing ends and, and there's about 32, uh, four, five seconds in between the music coming in for the playoff. Mm-hmm. It should be end music, end music. And he did such a great job that I I called him about 3 o'clock in the morning, my time, which had to be about 6 o'clock in the morning, New York, and woke him up to tell him how great he did a job. I had to do that. Mm-hmm. I did that with Bob Florence one time. Oh, yeah. His record. I want to talk about one thing, because this is something that's very that not that many people know about you. And you were kind of instrumental, or very instrumental, in helping break down the sex barrier in jazz, because you had Terry Pollard with, that played with you and Pat Moran. And you've got a story about Alice McLeod, 
we want to hear also. But tell me about Terry Pollard. You told me something about her earlier. Well, the wildest thing with Terry Pollard, this is 1953, where there, there was a cliche about girl. There were girl like Mary McPartland, Barbara Carroll. But there was a cliche. They were good for a girl. They didn't mm-hmm. have that bebop language. They they just they played the piano well, mm-hmm. but they were like almost like cocktail piano players. But they were good piano players, and so uh, and I had Horace Silver on my band, and and uh, people I even had Bud Powell play for it. I had some. I I got made a band leader early there my young day, so I hired everybody who was good that was out of work, you know. Right. So now I'm, I I go to Detroit. I just took, had a job. Went to Detroit. It was a regular group. And I, my day off, one of the guys I was in the army band with came down to see me. Uh, he was living there in Pontiac, Mission. And we said, what are, you gonna do? what are we gonna do now? And, oh, by the way, Dizzy Gillespie before that, about maybe six months before he told me, he said, we were talking about music and then Terry, there's that trumpet player. If you ever get to Detroit, he'll knock you out. His name is Fat Jones. Nobody knows who he is, but he's that great. Anyhow, I, I forgot that completely. I forgot it all. I get to Detroit and it's our day off and and the, uh, let's go have some music, you know. So where mm-hmm. do we go? We look at the paper. Uh, we look, I forget the name of the club. Look, it said Fat Jones. I said, you know what? I think that's the name that Dizzy Gillespie told me about. Let's go there. We went there and it was a band of unknowns. And they just stayed in Detroit. Of Elvin Jones on drums. Billy Mitchell on tenor, this little girl Terry Pollard mm-hmm. on piano, and I being somebody on bass, and and it was all Thad Jones playing all the music he was. It was great, and I, and every time I came to the piano cars, I was hearing a piano coming from a girl that I never heard that kind of articulation and the dirt and how all uh, she played as good as Thad Jones and everybody in that band. And so, I when they got off the stage, I, I I went over and I said, "This is my name is Terry Gibbs. I live in New York, and I'm gonna I have some but start a band from New York. Would you like to join my band? Hmm. And would you like to play? No, I said, Would you like to play for me? Not join my. Would you like to play for me? Or this sort of audition? Mm-hmm. So she said, Yeah. Anyhow, so I picked her up the next day. Two guys went who played. We went to the club. And when I audition somebody, I play I Got Rhythm or Blues Changes. Nothing out, out so that right. it, so they have to guess. That's the I want to hear them play. And she played the blues. I look, She played the heck out of them. Really play. I'm talking about somebody who I wanted to hire immediately. And then she says to me, you know, I play vibes also. Now, I started to do a vibe duet with Don Elliott mm-hmm. years before that. Uh, and, and that's what got me a lot of work in New York because we closed every show by playing a vibe. He played mellophone in the band mm-hmm. and then he played vibes. She said, I play vibes. So I figured, wow, I don't care if she doesn't have to play good. Well, I'll, I'll teach her some hand stick and, and if she plays, I'm not going to try to cut her. I'm, I'm just going to, we'll, you know, it'll be nice, uh, especially those days, a black girl. Well, I never thought about being black. She was just another person mm-hmm. who could play that great. And myself, I would tear up the place. And so I, I played some piano chord change once again. I got the blues. And I'm telling you, Billy, when she played the vibes, I didn't believe it. She played as good as I just played when I got off just then. 
So I, 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 it didn't make sense. So I hired her. I went to New York City. Well, first of all, first she didn't want to, she never been on the road with a white band to start with, so she didn't want to go out on the road. To start. So I, there was a, a guy who was, uh, 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 wrote for the, for the newspaper and was a big uh, international writer, big mm -hmm. jazz fan, and he was in town. So I called him, I said, listen, you got to help me get her on my band. I think she'd become a star, she's that good. So we went to her mother, we went to her pastor, and we talked and I said, my ex-wife, who was the same age as her, we'll take care of her. I was only uh, mm -hmm. 26 and she was 23. And so she went on her own, and after the first week, the first day she was in my band, we played at, at Birdland. Wow. <laughs> Charlie Parker came in and heard her play and offered her a job. Wow. I figured I'm gonna lose Charlie Parker, you know, God, what do I gotta do? <laughs> anyhow, she was in my band for four years. She never left my band. That's great. No, and there's that video that's passed And was there almost two years, she put, and I put her in the dream band. She played with a few albums. And then with Alice Coltrane, I I, I, I was out in California, mm -hmm. and I got divorced, and I moved back, and I called Herman Wright, who played bass with me with Terry Pollard, and I said, Herman, I'm gonna start a band. If you can think of any players, and, and he said, yeah, Terry, this is on the phone. He said, when you get home, I'll tell you about it. I got to New York, I got myself straightened out with a hotel room, and I, I, uh, Call Herman, he says, Terry, you won't believe it, there's a girl from, another girl from Detroit who sounds that good. I mean, she she plays different than Terry, but she plays like Bud Powell. I said, I'll audition, let me hear her. And then somebody told me about a drummer called John Dense, a young kid who came and I, I auditioned him and Terry at the same time. He sounded great. He went out to play with Superside later on and a whole bunch of, mm -hmm. and then I listened to Terry, I mean, to Alice Coltrane, I'm Alice McLeod at that time, and in four bars, or once again, eight bars, you could tell somebody is good. You could right. tell immediately. Anyhow, so I hired her. She was my band a year. Near the end of the year, I got the biggest job in my life at a place called the London House. London House, mm -hmm. that only hired piano players, like Errol Garner, Oscar Peterson, uh, Natchee Cole, it was a piano. My agent called me and said, in a month, I got you I got your quartet. You can open the London house. Anyhow, Alice and my band. Now, we're working it up as a John Coltrane. I met John here in California when I had the Dream Band. He and my, the Miles Davis group came out. We did a festival together. And they were all my friends from New York, so we hung out. And we, uh, we went on tour for a few days with the Dream Band and Miles' group. And we get to New York, and I saw Alice. There was a table at Berlin that face the back of the state of the of the bandstand so they never could sell that to anybody so mm -hmm. that's where the band would sit they wanted to stay there and hang out at the club and alice i see alice sitting there every set that that john played she'd sit there and listen and she looked like she was falling in love with john <laughs> now, john is shy and alice is very shy so i introduced them and and, and I, I i saw a, a a love affair happened. Uh, John came on a road and joined us for a job. Uh, I, well, they, they joined, no hanky-panky. He got in one room, she was in the other. And then about 
a week before we had to open the London house, Alice came to me and said, Terry, uh, John wants to get married. He wants me to join him in Europe. I said, wait a minute, my biggest job. Now, if if it was if anybody on Alice Coltrane or Alice McConnell, anybody such a sweet lady, I would hire my attorney, Bernie, and, and, and sue her immediately because <laughs> the biggest job I've had, I taught her to play vibes. She was playing vibes and all. But anyhow, she... That marriage went on, and every time I see Robbie, who was very close with Jerry, I told Robbie he wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. You know, <laughs> he, he, he owes me his life. That is an amazing story. So uh, I'm going to find that. There's that. Well, going back to uh, to Terry, there's that famous video of you two with the playing with each other, the shoving match kind of video. Yeah, right. I'll put that in, I do show notes for this and this also gets released as a podcast. So I will put that, I'll find the link to that and put it in the notes along with your, your link to the book. We, it's called Good Vibes, A Life in yeah. Jazz, right? Right. Yeah, right. and I'll put a link to that. You can get it on Amazon. It's hardcover and uh, it's only $15. So, you know, <laughs> and we've already sold one tonight. So, um, but back, let me just do a couple more shout outs. We got two more tips that came in. Well, Howard. Let me, who bought it for $15? Well, it, it says it, 15 on Amazon. It had to right be now. used because it's selling for $65. Oh, yeah. Well, it says 17 used from $10.37. 14 yeah, new. That, that's what maybe, but not on Amazon. It wasn't no, Amazon. I'm, I'm looking at Amazon right now, and they've got 14 new ones from for, from uh, starting at $15.14. I got to buy it myself. I don't have a copy anymore. <laughs> I'm going to buy one and drive over and have you sign it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you live so close to my house, Billy. I know. We're super close. I actually came over there once. You needed to, to replace the, the Yeah, little... I, I don't This Yamaha gave me a set of vibes, and, uh, and I, I don't. it's never been taken apart ever that I know of. I never mm -hmm. had to put it together. I got to take it apart. <laughs> okay, we. I did have one other question. Why well, Two from Taylor, but I'm going to pick this one. He was wondering if you had any thoughts on jazz education in schools. Do you think it's currently going in the right direction or... Do you know any? Have any well, comments about that? You know what? Sometimes the teacher can get too involved. You know, it's it's good to learn how to read music. Mm -hmm. It's good to it's 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 good to get, but harmony and theory is to play to play jazz takes two things. For me first of all, without technique, you can't play. I'm I'm a bebopper, so I'm I'm talking about bebop, mm -hmm. playing all those notes and hearing what they play. You have to have the technique, plus. You have to know harmony and theory. So if you see a seven, C7 chord, you just don't have to play a C7. You mm -hmm. can take it apart and play a G minor to C, C, C to uh, uh, C to D flat to F sharp to F. You know, you, you resolve. Take it apart, learn that chord, learn all your scales, learn all your chords backwards and forwards. That that that's what. But as, as jazz players, uh, I, I I there are. Uh, for some reason, I don't find as many good jazz players I, as I do them playing in the section. They can read the heck out of the music, mm -hmm. but you got to do both. If you want to be a jazz player, uh, you got to. Well, if, if big bands ever come back, you got to play with the big band. Even when you play the little band, people are writing arrangements to the little band. But you got to learn harmony and theory up and backwards. Well, I always I learn, thought... your, I learn your instrument. Learn that instrument, boy. Practice and get that scale. Yeah, I, you know, when we were talking about how you were playing six, seven nights a week for six months straight on the road, 
Uh, and then you learn about the guys in New York City that were playing eight hours a night and things like that, as opposed to these days, it's hard to find that much work. But yeah, you're right. You know, it's it's the it's the hours behind the instrument. Oh yeah, you know, it's, as long as it's the experience, you know, you, you if you, if you want to play, you got to play with better players. Mm -hmm. When I was learning how to play, I'd go to jam sessions, and it'd be guys who knew a little more about bebop than I did. Mm -hmm. I caught on, but I would go down here, Bird, because I was lucky. I was there in New York, hearing Bird and and, and Bud Powell. I, I was hearing the masters. I was getting from the horse's mouth, as they say. Mm -hmm. You know, I was getting, and I heard what they did. And I could I, I I didn't want to copy them, but I wanted I, you know what I, I would copy things that that Dizzy Gillespie played, then I would turn it around and do it my own way. Right. I play that lick syncopation with different notes. I would use the syncopation more than I would the notes that he played. You know, so there's all kinds of ways that you learn how to play jazz. Listen a lot, play a lot, play with better players if you can. You know. Yeah. Uh, but now, I, this is kind of jumping around from that, but you, when you came to uh, L.A., you were also a music director for several TV shows. Yes. I, I this, moved, actually, I moved, when I, when I had Alice Coltrane, I moved back to New York. Mm. And soon after, I got uh, Walter Bishop Jr. on piano. And then I, I got a call. I used to be a guest a lot on Steve Allen's show. Mm -hmm. And I, the producers loved me because... Uh, they love my rapport with Steve because I can't act, really. If it don't come out of my mouth, I can't read it. I, I have to, yeah. you got to let me say it my way or I can't do it. Right. <laughs> so Steve Allen quit Westinghouse like this, and the producers found this young kid in San Diego called Regis Philbin. He was in a comedy, it was a syndicated show. So they had shows in the can like for two weeks. Right. And show, but they would have to start a new show now. So he called me from New York and asked me if I'd like to audition for that for that job. And little did I know, but I think Bobby Troop, maybe Ray Anthony were up for that job. And I'm just like I am with you, I say the dumbest things. And I was saying all these dumb things to read his film. Mm -hmm. And he loved me. I yeah. would, I would do my Don Rickles stick, I might be saying. That's not funny, Regis. And he loved what I would say that. He loved what I, and so they hired me because I'd be the second banana. Now, when they, Steve Allen had a nine-piece orchestra. So they said to me, we'll give you a nine-piece orchestra. So I said, no, I don't want it. You need to give me a big band because we're opposite Johnny Carson, who had 16 pieces right. with Doc Severson, and, and, and back east, and, uh, uh, there's another big show with, uh, with a 16-piece orchestra. You either give me a 16 or give me a sextet. He said, a sextet? Can you do it with a sextet? He said, sure. Because the guests that come out to sing, the most important thing is a rhythm section. Mm -hmm. I knew if I got the, a good rhythm section, I'm, a, I'm in good shape. I'll get a, right, right, right. a guy who will play all the reeds and be vibed, be good sound. We need a tenor vibe, flute vibe, clarinet mm -hmm. vibe. And I had Mike Milbourne on piano, Colin Bailey on drums. And and um, Monty Broadway on bass, and you and her bell is on guitar, and you couldn't do any better with a rhythm section, you know. Wow, that's that's great. And well, then from that show, the guy who was the associate producer, they were starting a new show called Operation Entertainment, which called for a big band, mm -hmm. and I got that job, and 
did that show for me about 37 weeks and Steve Allen called me and I got that job for about 17 years and, and I, had, I had a good television run, you know. <laughs> That's great. So, uh, hey, Billy, I'm gonna have to. I know we I, didn't get to any of the questions. Oh, we, we'll have you back, Terry, if you want to come back. I think people I can would come love back to in hear. An hour. I can come back in three quarters of an hour. <laughs> no, I've got a, I've got uh, things to do. <laughs> but, okay. but I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'd love to come back and, and, and do some more with you. That'd be great. And thank you so much. Let's have a big hand for Terry Gibbs. There he is. I wish I, I wish I could have answered all your questions. Well, I wait, you, we'll do it again. I, and I just the proper conversation. We'll definitely have you back. And uh, just, you got so many great comments. Uh, people love the stories, especially the Alice and John well, what story. What do they know? What do they yeah, know? you know. <laughs> what do your oh, fans know, I, I thank them very much. You know, no. it, it's always nice when people like what you do. Whether you're, whether you're a shoemaker and you fix your shoes good or you're playing five or trumpet or, or, or toes. And I love telling these stories because I was blessed to have a great 80-year career in, in playing music. I was blessed. I wish everybody, everybody could be blessed that way. I well, work all the time. Yeah, that's great. Anyhow, and Billy, it's great doing it for you. Uh, Thank you. It's an honor having you on, Terry. I, I had the idea a couple of months ago. I go, man, I got to call Terry. I got to call Terry. And this is great. And then, so I'm telling you right now, we'll have him back before the end of the year. So everybody buy the book and read the whole thing. And then we'll try to find stories that aren't in the book so you can tell us about those. And we'll, and we'll never get past the first story. Yeah. Have a conversation again. Okay. All right, yeah, we won't get past the Thank you, everybody. Have a good night, Terry. Bye. Thank you. Thank I'm going to play the outro and uh, we'll see you guys Thursday night if you can come by. All right. Thank good night, you. everyone. Thanks for joining us at Live at Zero BPM. These videos will be archived on YouTube and Facebook, so tell your friends. These Jazz Roundtable shows will also be released as a podcast, so please subscribe. Go to live at zeropm.com for details and to sign up for our mailing list. Also, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you soon. <laughs>